Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Neil Fox, and joining me as ever, I'm delighted to say, is Dario Lalares. Hello, Dario. Hello, Neil. It's really good to speak to you, and really good to uh, speak to you at the end of what's been a, a trying week. Um, how's it been for you? I, I know you've been marking. Yeah, trying is is the right word. It's um, yeah, I'm off on annual leave in about two hours after recording this, so I'm kind of right at the end of my tether and uh, physical capacity for for it. Yeah, it's been a really tough tough uh, term essentially a third term sort of tacked on the end um just been marking and and uh, finishing that off today and then getting ready to to kind of sign off for a couple of weeks i am i am ready for it uh, and you seem to be similarly run through the ringer yeah i mean we had a three and a half hour zoom meeting yesterday and it just sort of brought home to me how inefficient a lot of the organizational structures we have are and I'm not just talking about our place I mean just sort of generally in you know in the way that we work and it's funny how this has sort of laid that bare but then this morning I was still really really tired and I think it, it this is the first time that I thought sort of staring at zoom has really hit me in that way and I found it really hard to sort of concentrate this morning and I was sort of doing bits and pieces of easy stuff but then also on the email I could tell the sort of real I think sort of tetchiness and and tiredness in in people's lives quite rightly and you could you could sort of feel it in the air that people were just like can you just understand where where we all are right now and I think it's uh, different organizations have reacted in different ways but you know maybe there still is a lack of awareness of just how difficult and I mean this unprecedented uh, semester of work in the university sector but just generally how tough people are finding it yeah, completely agree with that. It's, I think it's it's made doubly hard by the fact that, you know, I know certainly my institution there is a there is an absolute lack of humanity regarding what's happened in the world, you know, and this sense that we should just be kind of carrying on as normal and doing more essentially because we work because we're at home you know and we shouldn't be needing breaks because we've been at home for three months and it's all in subtext and it's all in this kind of constant stream of you need to do this and you need to do this you need to do this and yeah it just feels really isolating and you know it's not I don't think it is a woe is us kind of in this sector I think we are working extremely hard like so many people are but also I think and we've talked about this a lot you know that there's 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 two responses, you know, there's the human, okay, what can we change? What can we do differently? How can we not not continue this stream of just making people miserable and exhausted and burnt out and signed off with stress and anxiety and depression? And, and it's been rife in the sector from students and staff for the last few years. Or just, there's just this doubling down. And I'm in, I'm in an organisation which is doubling down, you know, and we had a, a week of training the other week sort of online you know, all day, every day, watching screens, being told, you know, do this, do this, be innovative by September kind of thing. And um, yeah, just no no sense of, of, of well-being at all. And then at the end of the week, there was an hour devoted to it. And there was over 200 people on a Teams call. And they're all saying the same thing. Like, we are exhausted. We are miserable. We don't know what we're doing. There's no support. We can't have a break, you know. And it's really, really it's really impacting people's lives in a really serious way, you know, and I feel very fortunate with my home situation, but but there's a lot of days where at the end of it, I'm absolutely shattered from just the kind of the overwhelming demand on, on, on my time. And I don't see any, don't see any change or any let up. And that's just 
oh my god that makes me feel really miserable and i you know i haven't even had my exam boards yet i've got two in the next couple of weeks as external examiner and it just you just know it's the same in most places which is just so sad yeah and and i think just on the screens thing as well the the i've been really making a priority of sort of getting outside and trying to do trying to do exercise because i find i'm finding that is the only way now that I'm able to sort of shift my brain into a different gear and, and gain some kind of relaxation. Because if I'm just sitting at home, I, I find it really difficult to do. So whether I've just bought a second-hand bike and refurbed it, so sort of getting out on that has been nice. And I'm managing to play tennis now that they've opened that up again. You know, all right, you know, all middle-class stuff. But it's kind of like I can't – I find it really hard to sort of sit on the sofa and or, or, or just sort of get into a meditative space at home and even sort of watching – films is becoming or has become kind of difficult although i think over the last few weeks i've kind of managed to put myself into the space by turning everything else off and just concentrating on the film and watching it as a film not like not watching it as a as something that needs to be studied or even for the podcast i've sort of tried to say no yeah all right you can talk about this on the podcast but just enjoy the film and see where it goes you know what yeah. I mean? and, and that's yeah. I've, I've been consciously trying to do that yeah and you've got a few interesting titles to to kind of to chat about yeah it's it it's really interesting at the moment i think to sort of see new stuff obviously in the light of what has what has happened over the past few months and the whole sort of structure of film watching in terms of you know releases and you know what's in the box office top 10 all all of that is just sort of off completely off my radar now so it's funny how the how our podcast i think seems to fit the times because we're interested in new stuff that maybe people wouldn't ordinarily see and then you know obviously doing rewatches of 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 stuff that maybe we haven't seen but we have seen before as well and uh, those of you who are patreon subscribers i'll write a little bit more about this on the in the newsletters but the last black man in san francisco was a film that i was trying to catch up with you know big time and i absolutely loved that and it it just sits with what's go, been going on really clearly, I think, but also is a really entertaining and and, and a film that is full of life and, and full of interest. And then I watched this uh, directorial debut on Amazon Prime called The Vast of Night, and that absolutely blew me away simply because it just fits in beautifully to a lot of the interests that, that I have right now with film sound. And on the surface, it's very much a sort of... Uh, nostalgia-laden sci-fi but it, the the director uh, really has found a way to to sort of play away, around with that or draw attention to what he's doing with with our love of sort of 50s 60s cold war sci-fi and the tech the analog technologies around that and and particularly in terms of the way it tells the, th- the story through the use of sound i found i found absolutely fascinating and i'm definitely sort of going to have give that a rewatch with a more of a kind of academic reading uh, in mind Great, yeah, I, I saw that the other day. I, I read um, Mark Commode's review of it in the Observer, and what's been really great is that you know because of the the change in distribution of the last few months and fewer big tentpole films and kind of big even high profile indie films, the pages in the the press have been given over to smaller releases. And there was a big review of the Vast of Night in the Observer and, and a really nice review from from Mark. And that switched me onto it. And it was one of those things that I'd seen it on Amazon Prime, you know, when it came up and, you know, just the look of it, because I hadn't heard of it, I was like, mm, not sure. And then I read the review and I was like, actually, yeah, I'll give that a go. And yeah, same as you, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And a great example of an indie which leans into limitations of budget 
and scope in such an imaginative way that you don't you don't even think that it's a compromise you know and it's not it's an artistic choice which works really well and it's absolutely yeah kind of gripping and great performances from the actors really kind of nails yeah that kind of tone and that kind of throwback but also understands the way that you know the 50s b movies and kind of the 80s the 80s cycle of homages were aware that what's being suggested as out there is is ever shifting and, and kind of can play at any time and it really speaks to the a lot of the current moment as well in terms of you know kind of particularly small town and and rural and, and kind of the the idea of the other and what's out there and there's a lovely moment with the with audio which also speaks to the you know the stuff you're talking about in the last the last black man in san francisco as well so yeah really really great great movie i look forward to uh to hearing uh, your sort of more more detailed thoughts on that when you write something, uh, what else have you been uh, catching? Well, interestingly, the other day I, I started watching a personal history of David Copperfield and got we. I mean, I was watching with our girlfriend and we were looking for sort of sat, you know Friday Saturday night entertainment. And I have to admit, God, it it really didn't work for me at all. I mean, again, and when I say that, not this is a bad movie. It's like it just didn't work for me. I found it really sort of BBC Sunday afternoon twee, and and yeah, I, I was sort of pretty disappointed considering how much we 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 watched the entire uh, entirety of uh, the thick of it and in the loop and i love inucci but yeah this was just pretty you know pretty tame i thought and actually in some ways did that thing that i hate some slumdog millionaire for which is you know almost sort of poverty porn or, or making light of of i mean i know it's supposed to be an entertaining thing i you know don't get me wrong but it just, it, anyway it just didn't work for me so then i i we quickly got on, so we need to find something fast and, you know, we know we're going to enjoy it. I said, you know what, I haven't seen, it, and it popped up on the on the streaming list, you know, I haven't seen Interview with a Vampire for a long time. And you know me, I'll uh, I'll watch Tom Cruise pretty much in anything. And, and I, you know, I just think he's a really interesting, the most interesting movie star of the last sort of 30, 40 years for many, many reasons, good and bad. And... And obviously Brad Pitt's in it, and Antonio Banderas is great as well. And God, that that movie we really enjoyed it. I mean, <laughs> it really, really sort of worked on a Saturday night. This is this is proper film star movie stuff. And uh, interestingly enough, because we'd watched that, then a few days later we watched The Lost Boys, and of course, what happened with Joel Schumacher sadly passed away. And I think it, it's interesting how the but seeing both these films quite close together they are very different movies but they but they're very similar in in lots of ways as well it's almost as if the lost boys is a is a sort of 14 year old version of of what the interview with the vampire maybe a sort of 30 year old would the same director might make that you know 20 years later or whatever so it's really interesting how they've both got that that sensibility from the sort of what is it lost boys i think is is early early 90s they've both got that kind of 90s aesthetic i think and a really interesting double bill considering what how many films today are you know obsessed with with vampires and and fantasy monsters of of that kind but both films really put the kind of the homoeroticism of the vampire sort of law you know i remember being at university and uh we are doing the horror module and someone did a presentation on the kind of the, the homoerotic or well, the homosexual undertones um, of uh, of the Lost Boys. And kind of it was really interesting being in a room of people who'd obviously seen the Lost Boys and thought it was a great romp. And then someone really articulately kind of doing a kind of close reading of 
the the kind of the signifiers in the film um and obviously talking about schumacher as a kind of homosexual filmmaker um and just people going what it's a queer movie and it's like yeah and then when you know one of those things where someone does it and you you can't see the film in, a diff- in the same way ever again you know it's like it's so obvious once it's been kind of read in that way and yeah always always loved that movie uh and yeah always had a soft spot for interview the vampire I remember when it came out and it was one of those films that happens in cruz's career isn't it where he's he's doing something people are like this seems like a strange choice and I haven't seen it in a long time, but but I remember at the time thinking like it's so interesting to see an actor like that doing work like that. And he's a smart actor; he knows how that's going to be read, you know. And while he may have kind of skirted around some of the more kind of you know sort of explicit things in the in the kind of the core text, there's there's no avoiding what's going on in the movie. And I think he really is is kind of uh, on board with that, which I think makes it a really fascinating film. Yeah, absolutely. So, what have uh, what else have you been seeing? Well, I got sent some stuff uh, to kind of uh, to mention, which has been really nice. Um, a kind of mixed bag. The a Foreign Affair. So Masters of Cinema sent me Foreign Affair, which is the Billy Wilder's post-war German-based uh, comedy drama with Marlena Dietrich, and it's that's just you know a really underrated Wilder, which everyone should see. They also sent me. I didn't even ask for this one. They sent me a film called Mister Vampire, which <laughs> um, actually just you know is is very much in line with your. Uh, kind of 80s and 90s vampire it's a hong kong action movie um with kind of undead uh storyline and yeah it's it was just a lot of fun you know it's really great set pieces um sort of set in a mortuary and kind of cursed uh undead vampire comes back and yeah just i've never heard of it i've never seen anything about it but it's a really yeah really fun movie uh well worth checking out but the best thing they sent me was um robert siod max crisscross with burt lancaster and uh, yvonne de carlo which is an absolutely brilliant noir or noir adjacent la movie um really really tough movie burt lancaster comes back to la he sort of fled because of this kind of tortured romance with Yvonne De Carlo and comes back vowing to be a better man and just can't resist and then picks up this heist uh, from the place he works. He works for a kind of bullion van and just gets kind of caught up with Yvonne De Carlo's new husband who's a kind of gangster. It's just it's just really, really tough and gritty and just has maybe one of the, the bleakest endings of any kind of noir, um, but a really, really beautiful transfer and just, just a thrilling thrilling b-movie which is absolutely fantastic the bfi uh, released little joe which is jessica hauser's film about plants um which weird you sort of talking about kind of watching stuff in in the moment that we're in and this you know this is a film where most of the most of the cast spend most of the film in mar- face masks and gloves and disinfecting um which just it's just it's just a weird sensation watching stuff like that knowing that's going to be that's going to be the, the kind of the everyday aesthetic for for how long you know who knows it's really interesting the way those the way it kind of speaks in a kind of practical way to now but um and i really wanted to see it cuz uh, we saw i saw lords recently on mubi and just thought it was amazing and this isn't quite it isn't quite up there but i really really enjoyed it um and it, again it's just a really slow burn interesting psychological drama where the premise is that this plant that they're kind of genetically creating gives off a, a scent which changes people in a way that it can't be traced. They, they're the same, but they're not the same. And there's no physical or anything changed. It's just, you just know and feel it's different, which is so hard to convey on film, but, but for the, for the most part kind of manages really well. What, what kind of 
lost it for me. There's, there's, I just felt there was a real misstep at, right at the end, which kind of undid a lot of good work. But looks beautiful, and yeah, she's a filmmaker that's that's kind of really interesting. And then the last thing was uh, Fanny Lai delivered. We sort of asked to to look at that, which is this origin story of Fanny Lai, kind of famous kind of Quaker figure. And this is starring Maxine Peake, who's obviously been oh, in yeah. the news for... <laughs> yeah, I've, saw, I've seen this pop up and you sent it to me, but I haven't got a chance to watch it yet. It's a, it's it's interesting movie. Um, it's weird because I'm reading Adam Scovell's book on folk horror uh, and just sort of the chapter about kind of the 70s and 80s British television, like uh, the M.R. James adaptations and uh, sort of Quatermass and things like that. And it feels much more closely aligned to that than kind of contemporary British folk horror. And it's one of those films that it kind of lives and dies by by its performances you know it's set in sort of the 18 early 18th century and sorry um yeah yeah late late 17th century i think and um maxine peak's very good as kind of fanny lie watching this kind of figure be awakened charles dancers the kind of puritanical husband and then the young there's a young couple that sort of come into the homestead and, and sort of change everything but freddie fox plays this kind of supposedly charismatic um, new age preacher kind of figure he just doesn't convince you know some actors can play in the past and some can't and for me it just that just didn't that casting just didn't work enough to to make the film work and also it's it's interesting because you can see what they're trying to do they're trying to show where a strong female legendary character comes from but the problem with that is that the, that journey is ultimately one where they face such brutality <laughs> and that if that's what you're showing it, it maxine peak doesn't really get the chance to to do anything other than witness and then at the end of the film say i've had enough of this i'm going to be something else do you know what i mean so there's definitely enough there in it that i'm interested in what the filmmaker does next but um and you know maxine peak and, and charles dance are always very very good so it has its it has its moments but yeah not didn't quite do that do it for me i think similar to david copperfield for you it just felt like i could see things that were attempted but didn't quite work great but some good stuff there that noir definitely sounds uh, like something I, w- I would want to uh, yeah it's absolutely brilliant sure. absolutely brilliant movie Cool. So let's move on to the main crux of today's podcast. So this is an interview that I did with the film editor, Katie Breyer. And we recorded this a, a little while ago now. I think it was sort of just as the the lockdown was really kicking in. And um, I got in contact with her on, on Twitter after seeing Bruce Lee and The Outlaw, which was this really sort of bleak, dark uh, documentary set filmed in Bucharest in Romania and depicted these street kids who were all sort of trying to survive and how they all sort of coalesced around this really eccentric and even, you know, charismatic kind of criminal street figure who called himself Bruce Lee. And yeah, it was really interesting to sort of chat to to Katie because she'd also done Maiden, which I subsequently watched which was the the film about the first female crew of the Whitbread Round the World Yacht Race. And again, that was a really interesting piece from an editing perspective. And she'd also done the, the, the Netflix TV series Virunga, which had done very, very well and you know won awards and actually had been quite politically significant. Um, so it was really interesting to speak to her. F- and, and also, you know, thinking about doing a an episode on editing itself, Neil, it's one of those things I think that probably you know, doesn't come to the foreground when people think of the filmmaking process. But, you know, as we know, editing and sound, if <laughs> if you get those wrong, you haven't really got a movie. And I think, you know, we talk a little bit in the interview about the idea of, of the film being made in the edit. And some of the things that Katie talks, talks about 
are related to sort of learning learning craft and learning you know some moving beyond just pushing buttons and learning how to how to edit i mean have you got any thoughts yourself on on sort of the how we talk about editing really in terms of the the cinematic process yeah um i don't think we talk about it enough um uh you know just with other aspects of kind of filmmaking you know and reducing filmmaking to directing you know again it's, it's kind of limits limits the way of seeing really and and I think what I'll say at the start is what one of the things that that comes up a lot is when people sort of say, "Oh, that you know that film was too long," and for me that always says, "Well, it, where's the fault in that? It might be in the script, but often it's in the editing, and often it's in not having a strong enough editor um, or a good relationship between a director and an editor to to know when something is is not right." Because you know, if a film is well edited, it it feels exactly as long as it should. You know, like it just feels like that's the right length and that's the right structure for that. And and much of that is in the editing. And, you know, there are there are numerous examples of kind of directors taking over edits, you know, and this and the the Otair idea uh, winning the day. But but the result is 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 not not the best result. And for personally, look at something like Apocalypse Now, you know, and for me, the first cut is the best the best cut, you know, that there's what gets put in and added just kind of weighs it down and creates creates a baggage and i just think it's much much tighter without all that stuff you know which are kind of a number of decisions have gone into that edit rather than just the editors but i think that i also don't like this idea that you know that people sort of say well you, you shouldn't see if you know editing should be invisible and i think that like anything that's a really narrow way of thinking about it sometimes yes it should be you shouldn't be aware of how you're being moved through a story um but certainly sometimes i want to feel like i'm watching something where there's there's a kind of a real design to the way those images are put together you know think of something like you know the work of nicholas rogue um you know don't look now in particular like you feel the editing um in that movie for the purpose of the the storytelling and uh again it's like it's it's like we always say on this on this on this podcast you know it's not one thing um that and it has to be kind of considered in a broad way and it's really nice to have an episode with an editor talking about their craft um to be able to kind of get into a bit definitely cool so let's uh let's do that now this is my chat with the editor katie bryant So, Katie, how's lockdown treating you? I mean, obviously, spending all your life in editing booths, it must be quite similar to the the situation we've we found ourselves in now. It's been really interesting observing how the editing process in lockdown and what I love about editing, because when I came home with with the kit, I thought it would actually work pretty much the same as it does in an edit suite and I like I like working on my own for long periods of time and then having a discussion with the director that's why I like working and so I thought we could still work like that but actually what I really miss is those that collaboration with the director where you're you're with each other and you're bouncing ideas off each other and that's when magic happens and it's not necessarily all verbal and you're matching each other's energy and you're getting excited about things and it's I really miss that. And we try yeah. on the phone but it's or on Zoom but it's not the same. Yeah, we we've had to kind of get used to that on the podcast cuz Neil who I do it with he's uh he lives, you know, a different part of the country. So 
we always have to do it remotely and then edit on the back end. But it's funny whenever we're going to go and meet up, there all there is always this sort of new sense of excitement. Oh, we're actually in the room. It's it's going to happen how it's supposed to happen. So yeah, I, I suppose you know with the 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 director editor relationship, you must have to do a bit of editing, then go back and talk about it, then do a bit more and then go back. It must be quite time consuming that way. Yes. And if you're in the edit suite together or in the same building even, you yeah. can have an idea and discuss it instantly. And they they might be tiny little ideas throughout the day or moments. And at the moment, I'm saving those up for one call and it's just, it's not the same. It doesn't have that flow. But we're getting more and more used to it, yeah. I think. And, and this may be sure. how we have to work for a long time. <laughs> Yeah, and with the, with the whole situation going on right now, obviously, sort of productions have have shut down, whether it's film or television. So you must do you have quite a bit of backlog of projects to 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 be working on? Yeah, I'm really lucky um, that I do have three projects back to back that had already been shot. Although we're waiting for pickups for two of them, but I know a lot of people in drama who, yeah, it's it's going to be really tough for them. I think they still don't know how it's going to pan out. Yeah. Um, I'm sure this will have an effect on my work in the, you know, possibly next year, it'll have a knock on effect. But at the moment, I'm very lucky. But it does mean yeah. I'll still have to work from home for a while, I imagine. Yeah. And, and I suppose, though, with, with editing, it's one of those roles that even if productions transfer into kind of like more experimental or weird home shooting or whatever it might be they're still going to need editing aren't they you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah and that's that's really exciting I think it's yeah. going to test people's creativity a lot and I, I definitely want to come on to talking about things like shooting on different types of camera and, and using different aspect ratios because it's very clear that that's part of a lot of your work actually and um, you know when we when we talk about Maiden and Bruce Lee and the Outlaw which is the first film of yours that I I saw the one I kind of uh, commented on, on online and um, which led to this conversation but just take us back to your to your sort of training we were you always did you go to film school were you always sort of interested in the role of editor was that the thing that sort of sparked your imagination when you first started well uh no so i was um always i guess when as a teenager and a child mm. i wanted to make films i didn't know what that meant write or direct i did used to write quite a bit um tell stories i didn't discover the edit suite for a very long time and I was desperately shy so directing was not was something I secretly wanted to do but the <laughs> thought I mean yeah the thought of um I did actually direct a short film in my late 20s but up until that point I I couldn't find a way in so I did manage to get A levels and got to university to do film, which, which was academic an academic degree at University of Kent. Oh. Um, we did make some films, but usually I was assisting other people making films, more confident people than me. And then I discovered, as part of that extracurricular stuff, I discovered the edit suite, um, which suited my personality at the time because I could sit right. in there and didn't have to interact too much with people, but also tell stories and actually realised that um, it was a brilliant way of telling stories mm. and I had this tool and I could it was like writing um, and and I always think I, I read somewhere I can't remember who said this that the story is like a baton that 
is handed from the writer to the director to the editor. That's an interesting point. Yeah. So it passes through these different stages. And then I was lucky enough to get on a traineeship at the National Film and Television School in the edit department, which was a... They did it for two years, I think. It was for people straight out of uni. So it was for younger people. They'd In the past, they'd had people who'd worked in the industry for a long time. And it was brilliant. I met so many incredible people, interesting people. I moved to London. It was um, an eye-opener. But I was still very much, very uncomfortable talking about film, very uncomfortable going out of my way. It was still, I was building up and building up my confidence sure. very, very slowly. And did you, did, did you learn at NFTS sort of, you know, through the, the sort of practice-based learning? You know, was there, was there quite a bit of, you know, we're going to look study this person's editing style or something Not like at that? all, not on the traineeship right. I was on. Right. So I was editing uh, student films, graduation films, but also trying a bit of everything out, which was brilliant for me. So I was trying, I was um, helping on all sorts of other people's, we all took it in turns to crew up. So I learned a lot and I met a lot of people, which was vital. Was there a sort of dearth of editors then? Is that why that traineeship sort of came into being, do you think? No, I think they were transitioning to uh, what they are now, which is much younger, I think it really was for people who'd been in the industry a long time and wanted to go back and study. So the majority of the students, I come, I was in my 20s, the majority of the students were in their 30s, 40s. Yeah, my friends, who are still my friends, were 10 or 20 years older than me. So I think they were trying to move it more. It was an experimental stage. And then, and then straight out of straight out of that, did you get projects to work on? You know, commercial stuff, work work that would actually, you know, sort of give you the career. No, I was working in short films for ages, which was yeah, yeah, yeah. fun for no money. <laughs> um, still not really learning. Interestingly, not learning. I don't feel like I knew then how to edit. I feel like I was being told what to do, right, okay. and I was pushing buttons. Uh, again, a confidence thing. I became, I went into Soho, became a runner, was an assistant for ever, for so long. Right. Again, watching people move on ahead of me who have more confidence, uh, editing, using the edit suites after work to do my own things. And just, it was a very, very slow process for me. And then I went into, uh, I worked at the BBC on Holby City as an assistant and then uh, started assembling for the editors and learned a hell of a lot of um, very basic stuff of how to cut a scene that had been very blocked out and scripted but that was great and then got into kids tv yeah i saw that on your profile i am imdb the sort of animation also puppet shows and stuff that must be an interesting thing to edit together i always like to think i was yeah for for about a month i was britain's top preschool editor (laughs) but i i loved it and met i mean animation well animators i met were just brilliant and again had a lot of fun um Lots of storytelling, really being able to craft a very simple story is not that simple. And I learned a lot again, um, but became 
eventually became frustrated because obviously it was very limited and finally uh, got into more observational stuff for TV. So huge, working with huge amounts of footage at a very fast turnover, Mm. um, sort of reality TV stuff. And then the big change in my working, in my career was going to Grain Media, who were local to me in South London. And that was about a decade ago, which was Orlando von Einzadel's company and John Drever's at the time. And yeah, it was, I just found my home there. And they, they, and they were produ- director, production, producer, company, and doing lots of projects, just for our listeners, yeah. <laughs> very, uh, at the time, very small. They were doing, John was doing comedy and Orlando was doing documentaries, but they hadn't been going very long. It was mm. a good time to start with them. And Orlando just made Skaterstarm, which was a short film about um, a skating school in Kabul. And um, yeah, and since then I've worked with him and with John on many, many short films and films. When you're first starting out or you're getting into the, the, the sort of BBC projects, is that very much a sense that everything, I mean, you say everything is kind of like blocked out and it, it literally is, as long as you know how to work the software, everything is planned out for you almost. And is there a moment where, you know, you said that you were kind of like getting a bit frustrated with with that. Is there a sort of time when you, where the penny drops and you become a kind of editor rather than just a sort of soft, software operator, as it were? Uh, well, for me, it was confidence to try things right. out. I mean, I think that's quite scary to actually yeah. step out and say, actually, I want to try something new. Mm. So that took me a long time and mm. getting to know directors and for them to trust you to try different things out. And probably it really, my confidence grew um, at Grain. Probably that's when I was really learning. And also I was in the last 10 years studying story structure, which gave me a bit more confidence, sure. um, just reading and, and watching films, watching documentaries and absorbing stories, reading mm. books. I mean, you're absorbing stories all the time. So I think when you realize your instincts, when you start trusting your instincts about story, that's when you gain confidence and yeah. And and then working with the, with the massive amounts of footage, that must be almost a sort of logistical exercise as much as anything else. You know, sort of organizing where stuff goes, but they're where remembering or watching through everything that you've you've seen and where is it all gonna to put together. That must be actually a really good sort of school for editing, having so much footage to deal with. I think it's a few things. I mean it's tenacity. I don't really let <laughs> something go and I have to watch every frame of footage there is, which is probably quite frustrating for producers um who want to Actually, I've been very lucky with the producers and on Maiden, there was never any pressure for me to, you know, rush things. I watched everything and things were coming in all the time. And um, they were brilliant at giving me that space. So it's sorting and sorting and sorting and uh, uh, taking it in, um, taking in different themes. At the same time, well, Maiden as an example, I'd already watched the extensive interviews that Alex had done, which were brilliant. 
So mm. I knew roughly what the story, what I was looking for. So whilst I was going through the archive, I knew what themes to be looking for. What, you know, when you find a moment that one of the your contributors has has mentioned, it's just, and you never think that you're going to actually see that somebody filmed it. It's very exciting. So I really enjoy going through archive and masses amounts of footage. But it's, yeah, it's it's um, overwhelm. It can be overwhelming. You just have to do it. Um, yeah. Give yourself the space and the time, or be allowed the space and the time, and do it methodically. So let's talk. Let's talk about Maiden. How how did you come to that that project? Because obviously, this is a project that is a, an, a like a, an amazing story. And actually, you know, watching it there, you get the sense of the historical importance of it you know, in many, in many ways. And, and I, I actually remember that being on TV. So it was amazing to sort of see all that, that background, background footage, but you were, you were working with lots of different types of footage, as you say. So that must've been sort of a presented a challenge to navigate the story as you were talking about. Well, how I came to, I met Alex Holmes or he, he had seen Virunga, which I uh, edited with Orlando von Einstein with a, a number of editors that were on that because it was a massive project that went on for mm. years. Um, he'd seen that and loved it and he got in touch and he mentioned Majin, but this was years before they even had the funding for it, which is extraordinary, but he couldn't, yeah. they struggled to get that off the ground, which is amazing because it's such a... A bit like the boat, the boat race, really. <laughs> um, it really was. Uh, and... Tracy was involved too in getting it off the ground. But yeah. Uh, so yes, and the footage, I mean, I never, my um, focus is on story. And I think I learned that with Orlando during Virunga, that um, if the story's good enough in the footage, if the footage looks crap, you have to go with the story. Yeah, you yeah. can't throw things out because they're out of focus if mm. it's a key part of the story. And the same with archive. So there was archive coming in from all over the place and I don't worry too much about how it's gonna look. I mean, you know that a bit can be done in the online to clean things up, but with, yeah. with a tight budget, you can't, there's not much you can do. Uh, What's harder actually is bad audio, and that's more yeah. problematic. But we've got around that before in films by subtitling things. So if it's if if it drives a story along, I say use it. There was one bit in Maiden where I found part of the interview, very high quality, this great interview in New Zealand, um, and it was only for a news item. And then I found the other half of it on another news item on really poor quality VHS recorded from the TV. We never found it. And we put the two together and it, and it doesn't matter. You can see no. that we pulled it from all different places. But And how much do you work with the director or do you, you know, have your in part in, in how long, let's say, to or where the cuts happen between the the talking heads footage and say going back to the raw materials because obviously you want you want those talking heads to you know to have that sense of of memory and giving it giving it a texture of this is what i felt back then 
and giving it a sort of contextualization. But then there's there are a lot of choices, aren't they, about how long you linger on somebody who's maybe emotional at the time and all that kind kind of thing. I mean, that's to do, isn't it, with the with the director editor collaboration, I suppose. Yeah, and and you have lots of. I mean, the ideal way of working is you have lots of discussions throughout so that you're on the same wavelength. And then if there's huge amounts of footage, you can't both sit together and go through everything. So they have to trust you and let you get on with it. Um, And luckily, Alex Holmes did. Uh, He'd done these amazing interviews where he'd really taken them back to relive that race. Mm. really extensive interviews hours and hours um and they were brilliant they were so candid and but we and yeah so getting that balance between the archive and the you know often the the women would tell describe an event so brilliantly that you want to stay on the talking heads other times i would find brilliant news footage or footage from the boat so it actually came pretty easily, the balance. For me, sailing was about freedom. It was freedom of everything. It was leaving everything behind. My father died when I was 10. My parents instilled in me a sense of determination. So when I heard about the Whitbread Round the World race, it was just something I had to do. Sailing at that time was very male-dominated. There were just no women anywhere in it. The Whitbread Round the World Race at 33,000 miles is the longest and most challenging on Earth. I wanted to be part of this. I remember going to the skipper and he went, we're not going to be the only racing team in the world, but a girl. And that's when I made the decision to put an all-female crew into the race. In terms of emotion, there's one big discussion with me and Alex, and I've had this with other people before, how often do you show someone crying? For me, um, and Alex agrees, for me, showing someone preventing themselves from crying is much more moving and emotional than showing someone break down. I think right. there are times where you show someone break down, and Tracy cries a lot retelling yeah. that story. But I think in the film, we only show her crying once, maybe twice. So you rein it in and then you, you know, when it's, when it's appropriate. What's good about that as well, I think the story that comes out is how it wasn't just kind of like a, a straightforward against the odds thing. It, there, was, there was a lot of difficulty within the crew, like the moment where, where she had to fire and, and fire the other crew member and then like take over. And it's great that you had that interview because it, it gets both sides of the story. I mean, is it difficult sometimes when... Almost that you want to, there is a story there to be told that maybe you haven't got elements of the footage that would furnish both sides in that way. Yeah. I mean, obviously the early days of Maiden before the race, there was very little footage. So we had to be a bit creative with the archive we had. Mm. But I mean, that was down to the crew. What you're talking about, the, um, yeah, when she had to fire a crew member, they were so open about it there's so much love between all of them the crew but just talking about Tracy totally owns her mistakes and Mm. she was they were so young so I think we can all relate to it which is what you want I mean what you're always looking for in documentary and in interviews is something relatable 
Um, how if you know, however difficult. I mean, none of the crew or Tracy were difficult, but in other films, you've had I've had difficult protagonists who maybe yeah. you don't like, or, or you you don't have to agree with what they've done. But if there's mm. something we can um, relate to about some some humanity, and often these people have told their story so many times before that it's hard to find that um, humanity and that vulnerability yeah. because they're relating a story they've told many, they're storytelling. So you're searching for those moments of, yeah, of truth, really. Yeah. Do you think there's been a shift in terms of, I, I want to call it the kind of, the coherence of different types of image. So, I mean, and what I mean by that is, you know, now we're living in the, uh, an era where everybody's used to seeing different kinds of, Footage, whether it's phone footage or raw footage or, or uh, you know, film stuff or talking heads that have been that's been shot very in high, you know very good lighting and all that kind of kind of thing. I, I just wondered in in your sort of career whether you've seen a change where that becomes more and more accepted or the norm or actually kind of required to give it a sort of modern auth- authenticity. Oh, I don't know about required, but yes, uh, it's definitely changed. In fact, the thing I'm working on at the moment, one of the I still haven't worked out a good way of doing this, but often now our lives, there are events in our lives that happen on text or on email. Yeah. And and I find that really difficult. We've got, I'm working on something at the moment where there's a whole conversation via text and how to show that, you know, do you have someone reading them out? It's just, it's, yeah. that's, anyway, that's, that's sort of not what you were asking, but I think we're, Yes. And and I worry that I, um, you know, there's there's a whole YouTube generation who are used to um, jump cuts in interviews, which I can't, I mean, I can, <laughs> I can't bring myself to do that. And I've yeah. seen, I've seen, you know, quite high end uh, TV docs that have jump cuts in interviews. And mm. I can't, I, I... It's not your thing. No, and I feel like, am I just, I need to, maybe visually, I need to... Um... It's, it's a definite aesthetic, isn't it? Because it's kind of like that that sense that somebody's being interrogated. It it almost comes from the sort of true crime genre, I think, you know what I mean? Where you, where you, you have to jump through a lot of stuff that doesn't necessarily matter. Yeah, exactly. I'm working on a true crime thing at the moment. That's why, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I've been thinking about these things, definitely. Yeah. yeah for sure. And and was go, just going back before Maiden, um, Varunga, which is this huge project, as you said, for for Netflix, which is Oscar nominated, an absolutely massive thing. Was that? I mean, without being sort of cliched about it, was that sort of you've you know your big breakthrough? Did you feel like ah, oh, I'm working on something proper yeah. here? You know. Well, we didn't. I mean, I think that Orlando. It was his first feature, and I. We were both learning, I think, and I think he'd say that because it started as a short film and it just kept growing and growing and growing. But um, it wasn't a Netflix film. So Netflix and Leonardo DiCaprio came on very late in the day when this amazing impact producer called Joanna Natasagara came on board. Um, So, no, we didn't know. We knew it would... I mean, the story kept getting better and better and better. But it was very difficult. It was a difficult story to tell. Yeah. And there are loads of different editors. 
We were also trying out different things. There was a whole cut um, Senna style without, you know, where you don't see the talking heads. And that was really interesting experiment because we it lost a lot of the emotion when you just had voiceover. But it was good to try it out. So, yeah, it was it was brilliant. And then the whole... Oscar journey was just really fun. I've I've done it all again with Maiden and it felt very different this time. And with um yeah, it was just really exciting and we couldn't yeah. quite believe what was going did on. Did you did you go over there then? We did. I mean Orlando yeah. and Graham were brilliant in that they uh yeah, we all went over. We didn't go to the Oscars. He went to yeah. the Oscars, but we all went to the parties around it and it was it was just yeah, it was brilliant. And we all felt like a team. We, but the best part of that whole journey was we all went to Virunga for the Congolese premiere and to show the Rangers the film, which was one of the most moving nights of my life. We showed them outdoors on a big, you know, we projected it with the volcano in the background glowing. Wow. Um, I mean, it's just the most incredible place on earth. Fantastic. And then, and then soon after that, though, you, you, I mean, it must be interesting because you, you are, you know, you've done, done a lot of what you broadly sort of call natural history documentaries, but with a, with a story at the center of them. But then you go, then you edit this, this film called Super Bob, which is a sort of low budget, absurdist British comedy. What, what, what's the difference then? You know, how do you, how do you come to that? Is, is there a, do you, can you tell very clearly that the, there is a, a sort of documentary style and then a fictional style of editing? No, not at all. I mean, I just like um, cutting, editing stories and one's scripted and one's not. <laughs> and in fact, a lot of Superbob wasn't scripted. It was improvisation. Yeah. Um, so no, I'm just amazingly not that much difference. Uh, I find scripted stuff easier in many respects because it's not such a daunting task you've got far less rushes but then if something's not working if there was something wrong with this you know at script stage it's very hard to get out of that whereas in yeah. documentary you have multiple ways of getting out of them a, a knotty situation yeah so is it true then that mythology that people say you know that films are found in the edit a lot of the time oh god well god in documentary yeah absolutely <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, yeah, they are. I've been lucky enough to work with a lot of, well, um, Joost Vanderbroek. Uh, sorry, I'm jumping ahead. Maybe I shouldn't. No, it's fine. <laughs> Joost, who was a photographer, a street photographer, and he was taking photos of these street kids in Bucharest and started filming them, not really with any film in mind, just because they were doing things that he found fascinating that he couldn't it just became an extension of his photos but his photos were always the thing he was focused on and then he came to grain with just hundreds of hours worth of footage also he didn't speak the language so he wasn't following conversations and there wasn't a story and I think he'd he'd admit that although he's very into film and he learned a huge mm. huge amount in the edit and it was the best experience, I'd say, in my career and the hardest. But I love that film so much. And yes, and it was definitely made in the edit suite. Ah, Bruce Lee. Care Bruce Lee. Normal, so Bruce Lee, our life. Sunt trimis de domnul. 
eu am un mesaj de transmis lumii. Eu, boss de boss, a încercat să facă o casă pentru noi. Un copil ca toți copiii. Decât că eu am întins Dumnezeu o mână că are alți copii. So we're talking, we're talking here about Bruce Lee and the Outlaw, the, the film directed by Juice Van der Brugge, as you were just saying there. And this is the film that I, I saw and, and we started chatting about it on, on Twitter, about this, this sort of underworld of, of Bucharest. And it's interesting because I, I watched it with my girlfriend who's Romanian. So she was sort of telling me about, you know, the, these kids and where they existed and where they come from. They sort of were turfed out of the orphanages in the post Ceausescu era? Well, the generation before. So Bruce yeah. Lee was in those orphanages, the horrendous sure. ones in the 90s. Uh, and then the other kids, they, there is an orphanage that they go and stay at, but it's horrendous. And there's, mm. you know, drug, drug addiction is rife and abuse. And now Nico, I mean, he's an adult now, but for a time when he was living with Raluca, who's a woman who... Yost and Raluca took the kids off the streets and he was much safer than in the orphanage, actually. Yeah, mm. yeah. But then amazing footage of these underground, I mean, I was going to say caves, like caverns, or the, it's the old sort of sewerage works. and and Not sewerage, it was hot, I think Ceausescu, oh, hot water pipes. Pipes, yeah, that's right. That go under the city. I mean, they're amazing, they're boiling yeah. hot. So it's it's a good place to sleep. Absolutely. And they, they'd sort of turned it into their own kind of underworld city, in a sense. And this guy, the, I mean, this guy who calls himself Bruce Lee with this sort of charismatic Pied Piper sort of thing going on, you know what I mean? But, but especially for these young kids. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a really, really tough watch. So the main question I wanted to ask was, you know, how, how much were you and, and Juice sort of thinking about how, you know, how bleak do we we need to make this? Because we can't sort of shy away from how difficult it is. While these young young kids on drugs, you know, with their little their little bags of this uh, Aralax, it must be quite difficult to sort of in your mind to sort of think, you know, how can we keep the audience, you know, on board and have a have a central story that may have a hopefully some kind of not a resolution or a happy ending, but do you know what I mean? Something to go to, but it, but keeping that sense of how bleak this, this situation is. Well, the bleakness, actually, there's not much you have to do for that to... I mean, it's yeah. obvious. And actually, Yost, and I think it comes across very a lot in the footage, as I was watching the footage, that, that Yost was very keen to show that these kids had a lot of fun. Yeah, they're very yeah. resilient, but they were just kids and they were mm -hmm. doing what kids do, which is, you know, playing mm -hmm. and having a laugh. And I, I mean, I used to be in the edit suite and laughing about something that the kids were doing and someone would walk in and, and I think if you just saw it from the outside, people were going, God, how could you watch this? And I couldn't see it because I got to know those kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then... Obviously, when Nico got ill, uh, that footage was the most painful footage. So going back to when Yost turned up with this footage, 
I watched it through with a translator and with Yoast to try and find um, whether there was a feature film in there. Mm. And I said, yes, there is, not really knowing how the hell we were going to make a feature <laughs> film out of it. And then, but they, he'd interviewed all the kids. He'd, I mean, he'd spent years with them. So there was incredible interviews and with Bruce Lee. And I think people thought Bruce Lee would be the main character. But this little kid, Nico, was mm. so incredible. And there's so much footage of him just telling amazing stories. He's the best storyteller and so sweet. And he, so he would, I think he came out as a clear yeah. um, voice. And then he got ill. So obviously there was this event that happened to him, which actually I was talking about this the other day, that their day-to-day -day lives were very, there's not much happened to them. Sure. Um, and they're often very stoned from the punga. So actually for a plot, for any plot, it was hard to find any plot. Mm. And Yost happened to be there when he found Nico cl very close to death and got him to the hospital. And he filmed a bit on his phone, very little, because he was in the hospital and couldn't. But enough to make that a key part of the story. And so then I, I thought we need to impose some story structure on this. And it, it was a classic coming-of-age movie, potentially. So... Yost would go back and record more voiceover with Nico and show him scenes that we've cut, which are my favourite right. bits where he's commentating on the scenes. And then we had his 18th birthday. We knew that was coming up, so that could be a nice end to the film. Mm. Whatever may happen to him, at least he's reached, he's become an adult and he's moved away from Bruce. But then Bruce got arrested as well, which was even more perfect. I mean, not for Bruce, it was very very sad but mm. for from a coming of age point of view it coincided mm. with nico's 18th birthday and yeah i mean would you say it's the most most experimental film you've made in a way because it's i think it you know that what you're talking about in terms of imparting a kind of narrative on that there's still long sections isn't there where it literally is sort of more concerned with the aesthetics of being in uh, underground and all that kind of stuff and what it actually feels like to be in that situation, you know? Well, that's definitely Yoast. So I'm all for, you know, I was trying desperately to fit it into this yeah. as much as I could to have a structure that audiences could follow. And then, but the whole, the snow, I don't know if you remember, there are episodes where they're walking through the snow. Mm. And it was yeah, beautiful no, no, no. Yeah. footage and this very dreamlike footage. And they're, you know, they're often stoned. So going into their world is probably a bit like that. That's what we were trying to imagine. But that's very much Joe's, that's him bringing his aesthetic to it. But then finding a place for that within a story. Yeah, and we, we had more of those. I, I really love those sequences. We did have more of those, but probably too many. So it was getting the balance right that you weren't lost. You didn't feel like you'd been left hanging as an audience. And then I just watched uh, this morning, actually, the um, the short doc you did for National Geographic on the Rohingya refugees in, in Bangladesh. Um, and it's funny because I think there's a lot of, obviously there's, it's a different part of the world and a different story, but there's it kind of is similar, isn't it, in a way, 
in terms of the, the, the situations, the stuff that, that, that's going on. So how did you get involved with that project? Tell us about that one. So that was at Grain with Orlando, Von Einstein. And actually there's five films we've done for Nat Geo and the other four are being released this week. All right. And they're all just, they're great. Um, they're all very different from all parts of the world, but Orlando's big thing, which I love, is trying to find stories of hope in really desperate situations. And the Lost and Found was about this, this incredible man, Kamal Hussein, uh, reunites families in the biggest refugee camp on earth in Bangladesh, and he's amazing. Um, he's found, he's a Rohingya refugee himself and he's lived there for many years and he's just found this purpose in life. And so the film crew were there following him and he just got on with his job and didn't, was very unselfconscious, which was perfect. And talking about that emotional thing in interviews, he's very unemotional in his interview. But he's so open and I just think he's so relatable that those interviews were beautiful. He doesn't say, he didn't say very much because he's really busy (laughs) and he's doing his job and he's just getting on with it. But what he does say is very moving. Yeah, it's interesting because as a character, it's almost like somebody without, without any guile or sort of any agenda He's just doing it. He's just doing what he's got to do in finding the, these kids and he just goes into these situations. And you can see that the manner, he's, he seems very, somebody who's, who can win trust very easily and that comes across in the film. Absolutely. God, the kids, you see them totally relaxed with him. Yeah. Um, he's so good with them and he's very matter-of-fact. He's very... He doesn't fuss around them. He just does his job and finds their mm. parents and... It's very beautiful. I mean, there's so many more rushes, so many more kids he reunited with parents and we had to make decisions because it could have felt very episodic because they're quite sure. similar. Similar, he stays with the kids, he announces it, he, you know, and then the parents come and there's they get reunited. So we had to mix it up and mm. choose which kids represented certain things. But there were so many more and it was incredible to watch right. the footage for that. But the same with Nico, sorry, but the guile and the same with Nico that Nico's the little boy in Bruce Lee and the Outlaw. He uh, has uh, lived through unbelievably awful things. And I guess it's because he's a child and now he's in his early 20s, but he doesn't seem to have any resentment about him, which, um, I mean, I think that's, really surprising and I wouldn't blame him if he did have lots of resentment about how his life's turned out but Mm. he made a brilliant character in that respect and we couldn't once we decided to use him as voiceover and show this film from his point of view we couldn't go any other way we just had to um if he talked about We'd ask him about Ceausescu. He knew nothing about Ceausescu. So we couldn't go down that route. We couldn't make it political because Nico's not particularly political. What we did do was um, use a bit of archive just to give you uh, a bit of background, but very little, minimal. Mm. So just a final question there. It must be actually quite satisfying looking at the kind of work you, you get involved with, which does... 
it has a you know it has a political significance and hopefully you know enough if if, if pe- enough people see it and it, you know it's situated on the channels like National Ge- Geographic or, or or Netflix in in the places where you know we always ask this question does film matter anymore but the work that you you know that you're working on definitely does have that aim I think absolutely I I mean I've been really lucky to have been involved with Orlando um, and Grain. But yes, I've seen Virunga change that part of the world, but made a massive difference to the lives of lots of people. And I mean, I've learned from Orlando that finding stories of hope is how you engage audiences and also telling stories. You know, if, if you've got an engaging story, you'll get a bigger audience and you'll have more of an impact. And I'm incredibly lucky to have worked on films that do make a difference. And I think, yeah, good documentary really can make a difference. Great. Well, I've really enjoyed um, looking at your work over the last week or so. So thanks so much again for taking the time out to come on The Cinematologist. Thank you so much. Parc National de Virunga, c'est la vie de la communauté. C'est dans cette entité là où vous pouvez encore trouver les gorilles des montagnes. C'est ça ma vie. Nous avons l'amour. So thanks so much to Katie for taking the time out, especially when, you know, I know she was very busy working from home, as she as she mentioned there. So, Neil, I mean, we'll have a talk about some of the things that Katie said there, but you've seen Bruce Lee in The Outlaw and and you, you saw Maiden as well. And I just wondered what, if we can look at those from a, an editing perspective, how, did, how does that make the films that they are? Yeah, I saw, yeah, I watched Bruce Lee and the Outlaw made, and I also saw Virunga as well. And right. in each case, I felt that I was in the, in the kind of the presence of an editor who knew how to tell the particular story. There's, I think that, I think Katie's a really good editor and able, in, in, in all those cases, to, to kind of to, to see the best way to present that material. And I think that they're all kind of really well judged. I thought Maiden was fantastic. And uh, I liked Varunga and I thought Bruce Lee was fantastic as well. And and they were all very different films. But but it, yeah, there, there was just a kind of confidence of of kind of pacing and structure and and kind of storytelling that, that felt really significant. What I loved about Bruce Lee and the Outlaw was how uncomfortable it made me feel physically, yeah, yeah. you know, and how... Yeah. So much of the the footage is kind of underground in these yeah these kind of these tunnels under Bucharest where these hundreds and hundreds of you know a lot of them young kids the the decision to cut the material in that post nine eleven Gulf War you know handheld really really fast really kinetic really disorientating really made the experience kind of visceral. Um, and the amount of, of kind of time spent in that environment meant that whatever the characters were saying, that the reality of their existence was felt. And I thought that was a really bold and kind of rewarding decision. Um, but also 
what a decision which you can sort of see why that film might not necessarily play in the same way that a film like Maiden would because it's it, it's unflinching you can't you can't avoid the reality you know there's there's very little kind of that's that's kind of superficial distancing or anything else it's really you know it's a really difficult and and kind of challenging piece yeah. of work um and the diff- the difference is as well there's not there's not a, an easy story to tell that has light at the end of the tunnel say that that, that maiden has no. you know what i mean there's always that that sense of oh that you know they're going to succeed even if they don't win the race they're still succeeding yeah. Especially right now, it's sort of within a context that you can frame it really easily. Whereas I think, obviously, with uh, Bruce Lee and the Outlaw, there's a there's a historical context that you kind of, unless you know about it, it's difficult to sort of place. But then also, there's a sort of realization that this is, especially with, with the focus on Nico, the one kid. But there's a, there's a sense in which there's a, a thousand, ten thousand stories that are just as horrific. Yeah. And the, what's the answer to? to that you know yeah. what i mean and it, the, the editing doesn't make you feel uh, informed in the in the way that you know that, that when we're following nico around in different parts of you know his experience there's not a lot of um title cards or kind of t- you know you just you just have to go with him um and be sort of taken around and it, they are very it's a very very different film to maiden and Virunga, which both feel like they're kind of tapping into what might be in a very generalist sort of sense kind of narrative techniques in terms of storytelling you know this kind of this this these kind of arcs of introducing characters introducing conflict introducing a kind of goal and then and then building to this kind of climax but what's brilliant about the handling of both is that the editing is aware that although there's a kind of a narrative arc that can be kind of pinned to the uh, the story it's it's a real story you know and that sense of particularly in the final acts of both films of not knowing what's going to happen and i didn't know the story of maiden and i purposely didn't you know read anything beforehand not being a yachting aficionado um so it it unrolls it unravels like a drama and the handling of it is really really beautifully played in terms of the storytelling and virunga as well is kind of set in this place where it's so you know it kind of builds to a huge kind of civil war conflict right in amongst all these these people who you've been following through the film and you literally don't know whether they're going to come out alive you know you just know it's real and there's a real honesty and integrity to the editing which reminds you that while it might be cinematically moving you towards the conclusion of the story that these are very much real people's lives um and it felt like there's a lot of choices in both films which are which are kind of really grounding in terms of reminding that these characters are people in a real situation and it's not a dramatic retelling it's actually a kind of cinematic assembling of 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 real footage documentary footage. yeah uh really enjoyable and yeah really impressive impressive body of work uh from katie yeah one of the things that i thought was interesting in the interview was she she talked about confidence a lot and i didn't you know start out in that direction but she kept sort of coming back to it especially when we were talking about her developing you know through university and it's interesting I think when you think of the experience we have in teaching students and the dynamics of which kinds of students go into rich roles or or you know assume that they belong in a certain role and it's fascinating we've got some examples that we'll talk about later on about how many great female editors that there are 
but it was really interesting to hear her listen to the sort of development of her confidence in terms of working on projects and gaining a greater sense of what what the editing craft is beyond just training on technology and it's it's interesting how I, I think sort of people who are at the top of their field they yes they master the the technical elements of it but it's the way that that transcends into the art form let's say within the art form so the editing within within the film and it was fascinating to hear her talking about that yeah it definitely brought up a lot of feels as the the kids say uh in terms of kind of teaching and that university space uh because one of the one of the kind of the challenging things is 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 trying to particularly female students trying to help them see that there's no role that they that shouldn't be by rights something that they they can do or want to do but there's something about the experience of university on a film course no matter how much you say the opposite that that ends up pushing female students into editing you know we a lot of our female students a third years third year editors are female students who've ended up doing it because like a lack of confidence at, or you know feeling like they're able to say I want to be a cinematographer or I want to be a director and without being too general there's a lot of 18 year old boys who come in very very confident that they can already do that and they make that clear in classrooms that they are directors or that they are cinematographers and they take up that space and that kind of leaves fewer options and a lot of we have really good editors and a lot of graduates who've gone on to be you know successful in the industry and working their way up in post-production who kind of fell in love with editing but weren't necessarily sure they didn't know what they wanted to do when they arrived but felt that that was a space where they wouldn't be they could be left alone which i think is, is kind of sad in one sense and and also not necessarily helped by editing being traditionally one of the areas which is has a, a really large array of the best or the so-called best and canonical practitioners being female. You know, there's a really, really good percentage of editors across film history um, who are female. So it's one of those roles if you're a young person and you're looking for, you know, even a university, where where are the examples? Um, where's the visibility of of gender in in the role? There's a lot of editors who you can you can call on. Um, but, you know, in the same way, there aren't that many cinematographers, if, if, if hardly any. So that doesn't always help in the sense that it makes people feel comfortable. Oh, I can do editing because there's a lot of women who've done it historically. And while that's true and they're, they're great editors, it, it, it doesn't always solve the other problems um, that, uh, that are part of, you know, kind of trying to trying to use university as a space to to address those historical in, in inequities in terms of the amount of, of people doing certain roles or, or feeling confident that not that they can do it when they leave because no one really can but that that's the path they want to they want to pursue which kind of leads me to the the next point which is you know that it's really it's really great to hear someone kind of under showing a really good understanding of how long it takes to get good you know and what it takes to get good which is you know being interested and feeling like you want to do something is literally the start you know you you lent me a great or you bought me a great book by Richard Russo the writer about um with lots of essays about writing and one of them is called getting good and it's about that that once you know this is what you want to do the commitment to doing it takes a long time and this has been great to see you know and, and all those films that we're talking about you can sort of see our 
that Varunga and Maiden and Bruce Lee and the Outlaw are examples of a of an editor who's become good and is in command of what they're doing and their craft. And that's you know as a, that's what I like to see as a, as a kind of as a film fan is 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 is, is being in the presence of people who can do that craft really well but it's interesting when she said talking about her formative years and and editing lots of student short films and then going into kids tv and i mean she says it there i was the the premier editor for children's television at one point and you can imagine that being just sort of like a because you have you're talking about the storytelling and she obviously in the interview sort of put storytelling at the forefront of what's important to her editing technique but the idea of editing something together that a six-year-old can understand, of course that's going to give you, you know, a lot of skills in being able to sort of understand how how the the format, the formal aspects of storytelling works. But then, you know, moving into Holby City, as she talks about, you know, where, where things are blocked out and, you know, you have to match then the storytelling to the, to the way in which the script has been written. So you can you can just see that somebody has gone through these different iterations and different types of filmmaking you know in the broadest sense of that that term to get to a point where you're making something quite experimental with with bruce bruce lee and the outlaw and at times sort of you know letting the letting the camera not maybe cutting as quickly as you as you would ordinarily do because you want to get that sense of being inside the caves and get that claustrophobia so you can see where someone's building up of their abilities has, has come from through these different types of through these different forms of editing I think yeah absolutely and you can see that th- that someone who's spent a lot of time doing things which are rote or pushing buttons <laughs> you know in the Holby um, the Holby example uh, and has got a, a vast array of experience on a lot of different kind of genres and different forms but when the quote-unquote opportunity comes to actually do some editing they're not falling back on just doing it by the numbers. You know, Bruce Lee is a really, really interestingly edited piece of work, which could be edited a different way, you know, and in the hands of a lot of people who might have come through the same processes and the same experiences that, that kind of Katie's gone through would would kind of just fall back on on easier techniques. And that's what's kind of interesting about it is that despite going through all of that apprenticeship which so many people have to go through coming out the other side and and use using the skills in a kind of in a more kind of artisanal and kind of craft driven way is is really really exciting i think awesome so tell me about then some of the examples that you you were thinking of when i said you know what what comes to mind when you think of a a really a, a film that is defined maybe or or is represented as being great because of its editing so mentioned uh, one earlier, which don't look now. Um, uh, Nicholas Rogue, uh, edited by Graham Clifford, and yeah, just it's one of those ones. It feels too obvious, but it, I've used it a lot in teaching, and every time you use it, it just kind of it just feels like the perfect example of how to how to think about time and the use of time and the, and the manipulation of time, um, and the you know that opening sequence is just extraordinary and the whole tone of the film is set up in that sequence you know which the editing of it is just absolutely incredible um and it was interesting that graham clifford also edited the man who fell to earth for for rogue altman's images a similar psychological thriller from the early 70s you know in that kind of period of british cinema uh, or british filmmakers kind of you know in the european new wave really leaning into 
time and space manipulation on screen. I think that was a great example. And the other two I wanted to mention were um, mainly because I've been uh, watching the Wu-Tang documentary, um, but uh, Ghost Dog, Jay Rabinovitz's editing on Ghost Dog, which is just a wonderful example of working with music to to kind of to pace a film and to just kind of to create the sense of being sort of taken along uh, by the, the 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 sound and the image uh, concurrently i just think it's i love the score and the editing feels absolutely connected to it in such a such a holistic and organic way um that it just feels so natural i like editing where you you just feel like it's everything's kind of unraveling before you in 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 the way it should um and the last one is sarah flax editing for the limey she's an editor who worked is kind of sophia coppola's regular editor and i also saw she um edited uh, dave chappelle's block party which is a, one of my favorite music documentaries but uh steven soderbergh's the limey is one of my favorite films and it does that thing which Don't Look Now does in terms of the way it plays with the past and the present and the future um, and kind of creates a simultaneously disorienting but also um, a, a disorienting experience but simultaneously makes you feel like, you know, you're exactly where you should be in the in the story and the kind of the timeline. It's, it's just kind of really magical, kind of dreamlike uh, editing. And also it's a film which is both you know, kind of edited in the present uh, in terms of the, the story it's unraveling, but also uses archive footage from Ken Loach's Poor Cow in such an amazing way. The way that it weaves 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 that footage in to be sort of Terence Stamp and, and sort of Leslie Ann Warren's kind of younger characters, uh, younger selves, is just magical. I just it just feels like a masterclass in in kind of so many different forms of editing, and I just love it. I just love the way. It's kind of cool and pulpy and just yeah, kind of dreamlike. I think it's it's a it's an exceptional piece of work and another 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 sort of film I bring out a lot when I'm when I'm teaching editing. What about you? Well, two of the editors that immediately sprung to mind were women, and I think that what I was what I was thinking of was what we talked a little bit about earlier on in terms of the way in which the the editor is kind of subsumed under the auteur. And two, there's two classic examples of that for me, and one is Thelma Shoemaker, of, who is Scorsese's regular editor. And I always remember, and I think it was Mark Cousins years ago told me this. So, so, and I hope, hopefully, I'm not speaking out of turn here, but I think there was there was one particular film. Obviously, the relationship between Shoemaker and, and Scorsese is is absolutely fundamental to the filmmaking, and just evidence though that you know the auteur male always takes the sort of top billing. But I think. Mark sort of intimated to me that with Casino, his film, um, that she ostensibly saved that in the edit because he had all the footage but didn't know really how to put it together. And again, you know, I think these some of these could be urban legends, but it's interesting how I think, you know, that could be circulated as a sort of open secret in Hollywood, the idea that, you know, that Shoemaker does do a lot of the work of putting, you know, putting the films together in, in the right way, let's say. And then the other one was um, Francoise Colleen, who is the the editor for Godard. And for somebody who is, you know, considered by, you know, many as sort of transformative of, of cinema from sort of, you know, a classical to a modern art form, really. The editing part of that is so fundamental. And it's it's interesting how she doesn't get mentioned very rarely, I think, in terms of the relationship between the two. It is, again, everything is, is the male director getting the top billing. But then also... 
just in terms of absolutely brilliant editing in the last few years, the film I would point to would be Mad Max Fury Road because, and that that's edited by Margaret Sixel. And that's a film I think that is just so completely um, requiring of you as a viewer to know where you are in space and time. That if the editing is off with that, you could just get completely lost in the images because there's so much going on just in terms of the aesthetics and the colours and the the speed of movement and and everything like that. And it's so interesting how that film is, you know, is plot-wise is so basic, but yet it's just so complex in an editing sense. And, and I never, ever feel like I do with some action movies where, well, where am I now? Who's fighting who? And you just... It's amazing how you never really feel that in that in that film. And then I think you know the sort of other great names that you that you could mention. Someone like Lee Smith, who's done uh, the Truman Show, Master and Commander, so he's an Australian um, editor, but now works very much with Christopher Nolan and and did The Dark Knight. Uh, Michael Kahn, who is Spielberg's editor, and I think particularly his work on. Um, on Minority Report, I think was really, really interesting. And then uh, Pietro Scalia, I think. I mean, going back to the use of the footage and how to construct um, kind of different time frames. I mean, he directed JFK, which I think is almost a sort of masterclass of that idea of... Because in the courtroom scene as well, the whole film is sort of trying to construct something of, you know, what went on in the past when you never really know. And sort of getting that idea of, yeah, we understand the kind of corners of this movie, even though it's a... It's a conspiracy movie and you're not supposed to know what's going on. And, and Scalia went on to work very much with uh, Ridley Scott on uh, Gladiator and, and uh, The Martian and his, his his other films. So, yeah, those are a, a few of the... Oh, and I must also mention Mark Sanger, who who, who edited uh, Gravity and works with Alfonso Cuaron. And I think, again, another ed- editor who contributes an awful lot, it seems to me, in terms of what, what the films actually are. Cool. Yeah, I thought you might have mentioned uh, D.D. Allen, who uh, edited The Hustler, um, Dog Day Afternoon, yeah. and uh, yeah. Body, Bonnie and well, Clyde. Well, there's so many, others. isn't there? You know, it's. Uh, I know. It's, I, know. Uh, it's I just know how much he loved The Hustler. Yeah. That's all. Yeah, but no, it's interesting. True. I think you know, in terms of you know the the dominance of the auteur, and also that you know, kind of coupled with this idea of of finding the film in the edit, you know, and, and kind of what that what that role is, and what that that part of the process is, and and what that relationship is, and and how how the film comes together from the footage, which is kind of gargantuan. And Shoemaker's a great example because imagine that career with a different filmmaker. And when sort of, when we talk about the auteur theory and I kind of, you know, sort of say you can trace Tarantino from sort of pre-Sally Menke to post-Sally Menke, you know, when since she's died, those films are not edited in the same way and they're arguably much more flabby with, you know, much less control even the longer earlier films that you know like Jackie Brown is just beautifully edited and feels ab- you know it's, it doesn't feel long it feels like the right length of time and you know so if 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 there's such a discernible difference between the editing and the not just the kind of the form of the editing but the the fact that there's such a control and there's it feels so right you know when the editor steps away like you know what, what does that say about the role of the editor and to me it says that the editing plays a big part and you know to go back to Dee Dee Allen and, and kind of Bonnie and Clyde and you think about the ending of that film and how significant that sequence is you know and what the editing of that f- that sequence particularly which kind of arguably changes so much in cinema and and so much of it is in that kind of psycho mold felt rather than seen 
it feels violent. It feels like we're seeing something really vicious, even though a lot of what we're seeing is 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 kind of snatched and and kind of felt rather than you know. I think it's a it's a it's a, it's a brilliant a brilliant piece of filmmaking uh, and from an editing point of view. And I think that those people that we're talking about are are kind of masters at, at kind of knowing what that story telling needs to be from from the footage and and arguably the directors are not always the best people to make those decisions you know because there's they're close to the material you know and i wouldn't say that's a general kind of blanket statement but i think that there's a i think there's a case to be made for for the for editing as being kind of the most vital part and and a lot of filmmakers have said so you know wells was obviously very very vocal about you know that editing is filmmaking that everything else is just building up to that point where you make the film in the edit room well, that seems like a good place to end. We hope you've enjoyed uh, this um, episode. And thanks once again to Katie. It's been great to sort of have her interview as the inspiration to talk about editing um, in film. Uh, great to speak to you, Neil, of course. Yeah, thank you. And uh, yeah, really good to catch up and uh, really love the episode. Thanks, Ben. No problem. And we have one more to go. Um, I think we'll try and get that done maybe in a week or 10 days time. And then we'll go on our summer hiatus. If you want to catch up with us, of course, you can email us, cinematologists at gmail.com or we're on Twitter. So if you've got any comments on this episode or any of the others, if you feel like you want to support the podcast a little bit more and gain access to our bonus material, including our newsletter, then you can go to our Patreon site. That's Patreon slash cinematologists. Thanks to everyone who continues to listen. This has been the Cinematologist Podcast. Thanks for listening.